Father, we thank you that Jesus uh, purchased our freedom from sin at the cross. He, he doesn't save us so that we can keep on sinning. He saves us from our slavery to sin. He saves us from the wrath of God, and uh, he saves us so that uh, he can transform us into a people who are zealous for good deeds, who are rescued by the, only the work that Christ has done, not their own work, but they are saved unto a life of of the freedom and joy of being able to work for God, not, not working to earn salvation, but, but working because they have been saved and working from grateful hearts, uh, longing to, to serve the God who made them and saved them. And Lord, as we come to the book of Galatians, uh, we are going to be continually reminded of that gospel order that we, we aren't saved by our works, we are saved only by Christ's work. We are saved through faith in him. But then once we are saved, we are enabled to begin working for God, um, to worship him with a life of service. And we pray that, uh, that this, this letter to the Galatians, that you would work through this letter to accomplish that in our hearts, that we would rest all the more in the finished work of Jesus and that we would be motivated all the more by the salvation we already have to live our lives for the one who saved us. May you accomplish that in our, our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can turn to the book of Galatians. We're starting chapter 2 today. Last week, we looked at the second half of chapter 1, where we saw Paul's alibi. Uh, remember the Judaizers, they have been making the false claim that Paul wasn't a big A apostle. He was just somebody who learned from the Jerusalem apostles, and when he came to Galatia, he kind of fumbled the gospel and left some things out. That's what the Judaizers are claiming. They claim that Paul was commissioned not by the Lord himself, but by the apostles. And Paul, he's, he's just finished giving his alibi, or he's in the process of giving his alibi for why that could not have happened. He, he wasn't even in Jerusalem long enough for the Jerusalem apostles to ever commission him. Um, that's just not true. He's, he's making the case here. Today, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul is continuing to uh, defend his gospel to these believers. So let's turn to chapter 2, and let me read the first 10 verses for us. Paul says, verse 1, Then an, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel, to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter 
in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. So Paul, as I said, he's defending his gospel, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. The Judaizers had come in saying, well, yeah, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also got to get circumcised in order to be saved. And Paul is defending his gospel. On Tuesday of this week, it will have been 506 years since Martin Luther nailed to Wittenberg's castle church door his 95 theses against the sale of indulgences. This document that Martin Luther wrote, as you know, it would prove to be the spark uh, that would bring into flame the Protestant Reformation. But I don't think we realize that when Martin Luther published his famous 95 theses, it was not his intention to blow up the church. No, his intention in writing that document was to start a conversation so that he could contribute to reforming the church from within. Listen to his opening words in that document. He starts out by saying this, Out of love for the truth and from desire to elucidate it or to make it clear, the Reverend Father Martin Luther, Master of Arts and Sacred Theology and ordinary lecturer therein at Wittenberg, intends to defend the following statements and to dispute on them in that place. Therefore he asks that those who cannot be present and dispute with him orally shall do so in their absence by letter. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. He says nothing there about wanting to stick it to the church. He doesn't say anything there about wanting to overthrow Rome. His desire is to seek a, a unity around the truth. He's wanting to get to a clearer understanding of the truth and to help the church to a clearer understanding of the truth. His motivation was not to cause strife. But after time went along, when it became clear that the Roman Catholic Church was unwilling to repent, unwilling to return to the clear teaching of Scripture, unwilling to get back to the true gospel, it became apparent that the necessary course of action was to break away from Rome. At times, it can be difficult to know who we can link arms with in ministry and who we should not. It can be tough to discern who we can continue to identify ourselves with and who we should break away from. For Luther, it wasn't apparent right away whether he should break from Rome or not. It became apparent over time. And it can be tough to discern whether to stay with someone or to break away because we know two things. We know that we should pursue unity, we know that, but we also know that we should preserve the purity of the gospel, we know that. And sometimes how those two things fit together is not all that obvious. Well, as we see Paul continue to defend his gospel to the Galatians, we're going to see how Paul kept those two things together, how he walked that tightrope of gospel unity. And we're going to find in him a good example for us to follow today as we seek to do the same. 
So in verses 1 to 2, the first thing we're going to see Paul live out that we should follow is that he pursues unity. We're going to see that in verses 1 to 2. As I said, Paul here in chapter 2, he begins, or continues rather, to give an accounting of his travels. That's what he, he was doing in the second half of chapter 1, right? He was telling us where he was and when he was where he was. Well, he, he continues to do that here. And he's given us a number of time markers. He said, I was here, then I was here, then I was here. And giving us, you know, time intervals. Well, he does that again. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. He's continuing to give us this chronology. He says, Then, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. Now, it's hard to arrive at, it, at an exact understanding of the chronology here. It's, it's hard to, to, to know exactly because Paul's language is a little bit ambiguous. For instance, when does this 14-year time period begin? Is he dating it from the time of his conversion, which he talked about in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16? Or is he beginning that time frame from uh, his first trip to Jerusalem, which he talked about in verse 18. He doesn't really clarify that for us here. Also, is this 14 years a full 14 years? The ancient way of reckoning time, oftentimes you find that the part of a time period could uh, be counted as the whole. So when Paul says 14 years, he might mean just part of that first year, 12 full years in between, and then just part of that that last year. So he could really mean 12 and a half years when he says 14 years. It's hard to know exactly what he means. And this, it doesn't really matter if you're trying to understand what he's saying in Galatians, but it does matter if you're trying to figure out how the events that he talks about here fit into the book of Acts. And that's what we, we did last week, right? We, we kept flipping back to Acts we were able to pretty easily keep track of, of the correspondence between what Paul was saying in chapter 1 and what Luke was recording in the book of Acts. We, we saw how Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, and we traced his movements. We, saw, we kept track of where he was all the way through the time when Barnabas picked up Saul, or Paul, from Tarsus and brought him to the church at Antioch, to minister with him there. So from Acts 9 to Acts 11, we were able to map Galatians 1 onto that to see how those things lined up. Well, it's a little tougher here in chapter 2, verse 1. And if you read the commentaries, there's a great difference of opinion as to where chapter 2, verse 1 fits in the Acts narrative. And I'm just going through this because some of you might have a question about that, and I don't want to gloss over it. But there's two main opinions. There's two main opinions about where verse 1 fits in the book of Acts. The first view is that this visit to Jerusalem that Paul is talking about is his visit with Barnabas to Jerusalem as recorded in Acts 11. So turn over to Acts 11. We'll just take a moment to read that. This is when Paul and Barnabas were sent from the church in Antioch to bring relief money to the church in Jerusalem. 
Acts 11. So Barnabas, he had got Saul, brought him to Antioch to minister with him to the church there for a year. And then a prophet came and said, hey, there's going to be a famine. And then they sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem. Look at 27, verse 27. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, to the elders. So that's the first view. The second view is that the visit that Paul describes in Galatians 2 verse 1 is his visit as recorded in Acts 15. So turn over to Acts 15. This is the chapter that records the Jerusalem council. That council took place in response to some false teaching that had brought confusion to the church. Look at Acts 15 verse 1. It says, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas, those same two guys who visited Jerusalem last time, Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Verse 3, Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And then the rest of the chapter is the church hashing this out, saying, no, you don't need to be circumcised to be saved. All you need to do is trust in Christ. So which of these two chapters does Galatians 2, 1 through 10, map onto? At first glance, the decision seems pretty easy, right? In the meeting of Galatians 2, 1 through 10, what were the issues that were brought up? Circumcision was brought up and the truthfulness of Paul's gospel was, draw, was brought up. Clearly, that, that fits well with Acts 15, right? It, it does fit. So we think, boom, Acts 15. Well, it's not quite that easy. Let me explain. As we saw last week, from how Paul argues, we can surmise that the Judaizers were claiming that they were being faithful to what the Jerusalem apostles taught. And they were claiming that Paul, on the other hand, though he'd been taught by the apostles and commissioned by them, he was not being faithful. That's what they were saying. And we've seen that Paul has been giving a careful accounting of his movements. We saw that last week in chapter 1, right? He was giving a careful accounting of his movements, especially when it came to when he was in Jerusalem or out of Jerusalem, because he's making the case that his apostleship and his gospel is entirely independent from the Jerusalem apostles. He wasn't sent by them. 
He was sent by Jesus himself. He's been giving his alibi. So when we get to Galatians 2, it makes no sense that he would skip over his visit that we saw in Acts 11. The false teachers would jump on that and say, Aha! Paul's, he, just, he didn't talk about his Acts 11 visit. That's when he got that commission from the apostles. There's some other reasons why, um, to me anyways, Acts 11 seems the most likely uh, scenario here that fits with Galatians 2 verse 1. There's a, there's a bunch of other, other reasons that I can talk about with you afterwards. But regardless of, of which view you take, whether this visit is the Acts 11 visit or the Acts 15 visit, because those two events, Acts 11 and Acts 15, were likely only a few years apart, they can fit into this timeline that Paul is talking about because of the ambiguity of his language. You know, if you, if you, uh, you know, there's some wiggle room there. Do you know what I mean? So both fit. Both are possible. So let's, let's get back to Galatians 2, verse 1. Hopefully I didn't lose you entirely. But Paul tells us here in chapter 2, verse 1, that he took this other trip to Jerusalem with who? Who did he take this other trip with? Just checking to make sure you're still awake. Barnabas and Titus, right? And who's Barnabas? Remember, back in Acts 9, Barnabas was the one who introduced Paul to the apostles, to Peter and to James, when Paul was having trouble getting into contact with the church because they thought he was still trying to kill everybody. Barnabas introduced Paul to them. Barnabas was also the one who had brought Paul from Tarsus to Antioch. So that's Barnabas. Who was Titus? Well, we learn from the book of Titus that Titus was who to Paul? He was his son in the faith, right? And Titus was also someone that Paul leaned very heavily upon when it came to uh, Titus being his representative to the churches. Titus went ahead of Paul uh, to try to smooth things over in the church of Corinth. Titus went to the churches in Crete to establish uh, proper church governance in those churches. So that's who these two guys were. Now, why did Paul go to Jerusalem? Look at verse 2. He says, It was because of a revelation that I went up. God had revealed to Paul that God wanted Paul to go to Jerusalem. Now, what did Paul do when he got there? Verse 2, he says, And I submitted, or I laid before them. Who's the them? We find out later it's the Jerusalem leaders, the apostles. I laid before them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation. So when Paul got to Jerusalem, he had a private meeting with the Jerusalem apostles, and he laid before them the gospel that he had been preaching. Now, why did he do that? Why did he do that? What does the end of verse 2 say? For fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Now, that's a little startling when we read that. We say, wait a minute, was Paul having doubts about the gospel he preached? Did he fear that he was preaching a false gospel? And I'll argue that no, that's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. Paul, from what he's said before this, does not allow us to understand him in that way. 
Because what, what have we seen Paul saying in, in chapter 1 leading up to this? Paul has told us that God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son had personally commissioned him as an apostle. He starts the letter saying that in verse 1. And in verses 8 to 9, Paul has pronounced a curse on anyone who would preach a different gospel. Now keep in mind that those, those, those two verses of, of cursing that, that we went over. Look back at chapter 2, verse 2, keeping in mind that he has talked about there's a curse on anybody preaching a false gospel. Notice the present tense uh, verbs in chapter 2, verse 2. He says, I submitted to them the gospel which I preach. He says at the end of the verse that he did that for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. This suggests that, that Paul was still actively preaching the gospel that he was laying before the apostles. Now, if Paul was really afraid that he was preaching a false gospel, do you think he would have kept on preaching it? No, he would have taken a sabbatical, taken a break until he got this figured out. That's not what he's concerned about. Also, Paul's whole point in chapter 1, the second half, has been to demonstrate what? His independence from the Jerusalem apostles. He's been demonstrating that his gospel did not depend on them. He's been demonstrating that he truly was a big A apostle who delivered to the Galatians a gospel that was straight from the mouth of Christ himself. He did not give the Galatians a message that came from men. That's what he spent the whole half, second half of chapter 1 explaining. It would contradict Paul's entire argument so far for him to now say that he had to go to Jerusalem and submit to the, the apostles his gospel to get their approval of what he was doing. So his concern is not that he's preaching a false gospel. That's not what he's afraid of. He's, he has no doubt about that. So what was he concerned about? What was he concerned about? Well, what else, besides preaching a false gospel, what other issue might frustrate his ministry? What other problem could arise that would neutralize the work he was doing among the Gentiles? Well, that something else would be a lack of unity between him and the other apostles. If the apostles in Jerusalem were preaching a gospel that was different from the one that Paul was preaching, what would happen? The church, universal, would get torn apart. How do we know that's what would happen? Well, we know that's what, what would happen because that very thing was happening in the Galatian churches, wasn't it? The Judaizers had come in. They said that Paul's gospel was not the same one as the one that the apostles in Jerusalem were preaching. And that confusion was tearing these churches apart. So it makes sense that, that Paul would take a trip to Jerusalem to, fight, to figure out that he and the Jerusalem apostles were preaching the same gospel. He didn't want to be fighting against the apostles of Jerusalem. He wanted to make sure they were on the same page, preaching the same message. The commentator Thomas Schreiner said that Paul, quote, considers the practical ramifications that would follow if the apostles disagreed with him. The truth of his gospel would not be affected by the decision of the apostles, 
for Paul's gospel was authoritative regardless of what the apostles said, since it was revealed to him by God himself. Nevertheless, if the pillar apostles sent out an edict declaring that Paul's gospel was untrue, then his efforts in ministry would be practically nullified, unquote. So that's what Paul is doing by this trip to Jerusalem. He is seeking to make sure that he and the other apostles are preaching the same message. As believers in Christ, it's, it's very important that we are unified, that we are pulling in the same direction in ministry. I want you to imagine a scenario with me. Imagine that Barney or Owen got up in this pulpit on one Sunday and they preached to you the true gospel of grace, that the Son of God became a man and he lived a perfect life in your place and he went to the cross where he paid for the sins of his people and he rose from the dead so that whoever would turn from their sins and trust in him would be given the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life and that there's nothing you can do to earn it. It's all what Christ has done. You simply must turn from your sins and trust in him. Then imagine the following Sunday, I get up here and I preach a different gospel. I get up here and I say, yeah, you have to believe in Jesus, that he died for sins and that he, he rose from the dead. Yes, that, that is right. Yes, you need to believe in him, but you also must do this list of works before you can get saved. Imagine if you heard those two different messages coming out of this pulpit, one week one message, one week another. What do you think that would do to your faith? You would be hopelessly confused, deeply troubled, and you would no longer be able to attend here in good conscience. That's what would happen. Unity in the church is of critical importance. And, and that unity is something that, that we, your elders, strive for. It's something that we seek to protect. And it's something that, that you, as the congregation, also need to strive for and to, to seek to protect. Unity. You need to pursue unity. If your Bible has maps at the back, you can see that, that the distance from Antioch in Syria to Jerusalem is not a short jaunt. That's a 300-mile trip. Let me ask you, would you be willing to travel 300 miles by foot or by ship to preserve the unity of the church? Is it that important to you that you would do that? Let me bring it closer to home. Would you walk 30 feet from this side of the room to this side of the room in order to reconcile with somebody you sinned against? or to help smooth over a disagreement that has popped up between two brothers or sisters in Christ? Would you, would you walk that distance to get to know someone better so that you can serve them more effectively? That's something to pray about. How committed are we to unity? Moving on to verses 3 to 5, we're going to see that unity is not everything. Unity is extremely important, but it's not the end-all, be-all. We're not to be united with everyone. What we're going to learn from Paul in verses 3 to 5 is that we need not only to pursue unity, but we need to preserve the gospel. We need to preserve 
the gospel. Look at verses 3 to 4. So Paul, he's in Jerusalem. He's, he's in this private meeting. He's laid out his gospel before the leaders. And this is what has happened. Verse 3. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. In verse 3, we learn Titus was not a Jew. He was an uncircumcised Gentile believer in Jesus. Now think about that. Get your mind back to Galatia, where the false teachers are. And they're teaching that in order to be saved, you have to be circumcised. According to the Judaizers, what state is Titus in? He's not saved. And he can't be saved until he gets circumcised and places himself underneath the law of Moses. But here, Paul is in Jerusalem, and he's in this private meeting with the apostles, and Titus is there, and there's not a single one of those Jerusalem apostles who try to pressure Titus to get circumcised. This is a a devastating revelation for the Judaizers. Their whole argument is just blown apart. But, apparently, the issue of circumcision did come up in that private meeting. I say apparently because in verse 4, Paul, he starts to say something and then he interrupts himself before he finishes. Uh, My version and my translation in verse 4 says, but it was because of the false brethren. The it was is not in the original text. That's the translators trying to help you uh, understand what Paul was trying to start to say. Literally, it just says this, but because of the false brethren, dot, dot, dot. And then he gets sidetracked by describing these false brethren and he never completes his thought. He seems to start to bring up why Titus's circumcision even became an issue in the first place. And he points out that it wasn't the Jerusalem apostles who brought it up. Who, who brought it up? It was the false brethren. They're the ones that brought it up. It wasn't even going to be an issue. They are the ones that brought it up. And and before Paul can finish his thought, he seems to get so riled up about these false teachers that he just goes off and and describes them without completing his, his thought that he got started on. How does he describe these false brothers? He describes them as having sneaked their way into the church and maybe even into that private meeting that he was having. What were they doing? by sneaking in. They were gathering intel on Paul. They were spying out the liberty that he and his Gentile converts were enjoying. And they must have heard, and likely they heard in that private meeting, that Paul had been preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, leading them to faith in Christ, but he never was telling them to get circumcised. Part of his gospel did not include, or his gospel did not include saying, you need to get circumcised, or you need to come under the law of Moses. That was the freedom, the liberty of Paul and the Gentile believers. And these sneaks, these false brethren, they didn't want Paul and the Gentiles to have that liberty. They wanted to enslave them again. They wanted to bring them back under the law of Moses. 
Now, how did Paul respond to these sneaks? Verse 5, he says, But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Now, the, an hour, that's the smallest unit of time that, that Paul would, would use in, in language. So he's, he's not saying, yeah, we, we dickered back and forth for 30 minutes, and then finally I, I stood up. No, he's saying, I didn't entertain what they were saying for even a moment, not one moment. Now, to some, that stubbornness on, on the part of Paul seems arrogant. Today, people might say, come on, Paul. At least hear these guys out. Compromise a little bit. What's a little minor surgery for salvation? Is that really a, a, a tall order? Is that really too much to ask? What's the big deal with having the Gentiles observe some religious feasts before they can be called Christians? Why was Paul unwilling to compromise? It's not because Paul is some cantankerous, little ornery man who delights in being set in his ways and kind of sticking it to people and getting them upset. That's not why. Why did Paul not listen to them? Why did he not give an inch to these guys? Well, the end of verse 5 says, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Paul's refusal to budge was not due to a love of strife. It was due to a love for the ones God had called him to bring the gospel to. Gentiles, like those of the Galatian churches. That's a big lesson for us. Because when we break fellowship with others, when we refuse to link arms in ministry with others, this has to be the concern. And nothing less than this. We're not to break with others over carpet color. We're not to break with others over whether or not, in, in the first verse, Paul is describing Acts 11 or Acts 15. We're not to break with others over how we see the end times as playing out. We are to break with others when the purity of the gospel is at stake. And we're to do so with the interest of preserving the gospel for others, that they might continue to be saved. So we are to preserve the gospel. Next, verses 6 through 10, we're going to move through these quickly. But these, these first two points that we've gone over may seem to conflict with each other. We saw in the first two verses how important it is for all believers and especially church leaders to be united in ministry. We saw in verses 3 to 5 how critical it is for believers to be uncompromising and even to break ministry partnerships with others when they're tampering with the gospel. But how do those two things fit together? How can I pursue unity, and preserve the gospel at the same time. Well, in verses 6 to 10, we're going to see that we pursue unity by preserving the gospel. We pursue unity by preserving the gospel. Look at verse 6. Paul says, so you've got the, the false brethren saying one thing, Paul saying, oh no, we're not going to do that. How do the Jerusalem apostles in the room respond? Verse 6, he says, But from those who are of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. What Paul says here, again, is devastating to the argument 
of the Judaizers who had crept into Galatian churches. They had been saying that Paul had deviated from the gospel that the Jerusalem apostles were teaching and, and that he had learned from them. But what does Paul say here? Paul says, I went to those guys. I went to Jerusalem. I sat in a room with them in private. I laid out my gospel before them. And in response to what I shared with them, in, in giving them the gospel that I had been preaching to Gentiles, which is the same gospel I preached to you Galatians, the apostles did not seek to edit anything in my gospel. They didn't seek to change a thing that I had been preaching. Now, why does Paul bring this up? Is he seeking the approval of men? Is he saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about my superiors? No, they're not his superiors. He was sent by Jesus. He didn't need their affirmation. He didn't need their permission to do what he was doing. Jesus had authorized him to do that. He was going to do that regardless of how they responded. But for the sake of exposing the lies of the false teachers, Paul references these who are uh, rightly of, of, of high reputation and says, they affirmed my gospel. These Judaizers are liars. Now look at verses 7 through 8. He says, But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. He's saying, contrary to editing my gospel, instead they saw that God had entrusted to Paul the very same gospel that he had entrusted to Peter. The only difference between the two was in their mission. Peter's primary mission was to take the gospel to the Jews. Paul's primary mission was to take the same gospel, but to the Gentiles. That was the only difference between Peter and Paul. The same God who had worked in Peter to place him in the office of apostle had worked in Paul to place him in the office of apostle. And the same God who had brought many to salvation through Peter had worked to bring many uh, to salvation through Paul. So here you are, have, here in this private meeting, you have Paul and the apostles, and they're recognizing in each other that God has entrusted to both of them the same gospel. He's just called them to bring that gospel to different groups of people. Verse 9, Paul says, And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. When Paul says they recognized the grace that had been given to me, that's just another way of saying what he said in verses 7 and 8, that they saw that he had been entrusted with the gospel, that he had been commissioned as an apostle from God. The, the office of apostle being called... Um, so Paul is describing this, this receiving of the office of apostle from God. He's describing it as grace being given to him. That tells us that the office of apostle was not one that you could earn or buy. It was given by grace. If you want to write a reference down, uh, write down Acts 8 and verses 14 to 23. And look at how Peter reacts when uh, Simon the magician says, let me buy this 
this, this office, this ability to confer the Holy Spirit. Let me buy that from you. Read about how, Paul ta- or how Peter takes that. He doesn't take it too well. This is not something that can be bought. This is something that is given by grace. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul says that very thing. Ephesians 3. Verse 7, uh, he's talking about the gospel of which he is made a minister. And again, that's apostolic language. What is an apostle? A minister of the gospel. He says, verse 7, the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me in accordance with the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. He's not just talking about saving grace. He's talking about the grace of ministry, the grace of being appointed an apostle. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And the the other Jerusalem apostles that Paul is having that private meeting with, they recognize that, that God has given to Paul the grace of apostleship. Finally, in verse 9, Paul specifies exactly who these apostles are that he was meeting with. James, the brother of Jesus, Cephas, or Peter, and John. Last week we saw that James, the brother of Jesus, was considered an apostle. Because back in chapter 1, where was that? Verse 19, remember Paul said that while he was in Jerusalem that first time, he didn't see any other of the apostles except James. So James was considered an apostle, not one of the original 12, but likely commissioned by Christ after his resurrection. So those are the three guys Paul was having a private meeting with. And these three men of repute were considered pillars in the church. That's what Paul says in verse 9. They were reputed to be pillars. And when you read the book of Acts, who are the three most highlighted guys apart from Paul? It's James, the brother of Jesus, it's Peter, and it's John. And Paul, again, he's bringing up their status, not because he's saying, I needed their affirmation. He's bringing up their status to show these Judaizers what they're telling you is a lie. These pillars, how did they respond to the the gospel that Paul laid out? They gave Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. They were fully affirming the fact that Paul was a fellow apostle who was preaching the same gospel they were, and that he'd been authorized by God to take that gospel to the Gentiles while they went to the Jews. So is Paul and these guys on the same page? Yes. Yes, they are. Verse 10. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. So the only thing these apostles asked of Paul was not that he changed his gospel, but that While they were out bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, they just asked that they didn't forget the believers there in Jerusalem, the poor. That's who the poor refers to. And Paul says, I was eager to do that as well. So not only is he united with them in preaching the gospel, he's united with them in concern for the believers there in Jerusalem. And Paul would make good on that desire, right? What was he doing in that Acts 11 trip? bringing famine relief to the believers there. 
In, in Paul's third missionary journey, what was one of the main objectives of that third missionary journey? He was taking a collection of all the Gentile churches to bring it back to Jerusalem. If you want to write this down, uh, you can read about that in Romans 15. He talks about that collection there. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians 16. And he talks about it in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And it was during his trip to Jerusalem to deliver that, that relief package that he was arrested and shipped off to Rome. And when you read the book of Acts, it's interesting that, that a prophet comes to Paul and says, when you get to Jerusalem, you're going to get arrested. And he goes anyway. That's how committed he was to remembering the poor, the poor believers there. Now, we see the incredible unity there, don't we, between Paul and these apostles? What was it that united these men? Look at verse 7 again. What was it that united these men? It was that they saw in each other that they had both, both groups had been entrusted with the gospel. That's what knit them together. So you see that commitment to Christian unity and a commitment to the truth of the gospel are not at odds with one another because it was, as we see here, a commitment to the truth of the gospel that led to that unity. Gospel truth is the only foundation of Christian unity. Gospel truth is the only foundation of Christian unity. Any kind of unity that is sought in disregard to the truth of the gospel, that's, that might be unity, but it's not Christian unity. The reason that believers from all walks of life, from all nations, from all social classes can be united is because of their common commitment to the good news that Jesus died for sinners and rose from the dead so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The last passage I'll have you go to is Ephesians 2. Look at Ephesians 2. Part of what Jesus purchased at the cross was this unity. So it's the gospel itself that bought the unity that we are to pursue. Ephesians 2, look at verse 13. Paul writes, But now in Christ Jesus, you believing Gentiles, who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that, excuse me, so that in himself he might make the two, Jew and Gentile, into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. So how do I pursue Christian unity and how do I preserve gospel purity at the same time? I do it by realizing that the kind of unity God calls me to pursue is the unity that has the gospel as its very essence and foundation. Back to Martin Luther. Unity between him and the Roman Catholic Church was impossible. Why? Because they did not share that gospel foundation. 
Rome had abandoned it while Luther clung to it. A unity that disregards the truth of the gospel is a demonic unity. It's a unity that Satan is thrilled for anybody to have. So let's let's pursue gospel unity with one another. Let's pursue unity with one another by loving each other enough to preserve the gospel for each other. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Galatians 2, 1 through 10, and just the wisdom there that we see Paul living by, uh, this this gospel-centered unity. And Lord, anytime we come into a situation where where unity is threatened, help us to run it through this, this rubric that we find in Galatians 2. Is the gospel at stake? If the gospel is, sta- is at stake, there cannot be unity. If it's not, there probably can. So help us to keep that in mind, Lord, when we're faced with those situations. And if there is anyone here who has not yet received the free gift of, of eternal life that comes through the gospel, Help them to know that that unity with you is impossible. They are at war with you. Help them to run to Jesus. And in running to him, unity with you and with your people will be found. So Lord, may you draw anyone here to yourself who does not yet trust in the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.